So Jesus is journeying through the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 9, he takes a decided turn toward Jerusalem, knowing exactly what was going to happen to him there, knowing he would die for our sins and be raised from the dead. And so here we are in chapter 17, and he's getting more and more direct with us and with his disciples about what uh, is going to be happening to him and what we should expect about his kingdom. He's beginning to increasingly bring up topics that make us feel uncomfortable. Topics like money, hell, uh, dying to yourself. Uh, He's talking about deep and total repentance. And in this passage, again, he brings up another challenging topic that many churches, most churches in America, you won't find this passage preached on. Uh, This is eternal judgment and hell. Um, this is, these are the words of the Lord. I appreciate what Kathy said. These are the words of Jesus, and we dare not take them lightly. We dare not extract them from our Bibles because they make us feel uncomfortable in an age where so many people disagree with Jesus. I have to admit, though, as I read through this passage, not only is it sobering, it also conjures up some, um, some past traumatic uh, evangelical stress disorder I think I have from growing up in the Left Behind era. Um, So in the Left Behind era and and all these apocalyptic bad movies that I I watched when I was growing up to scare me into becoming a Christian, I have a friend whose kid went to camp recently. He's eight, and uh, he came back from camp talking about uh, hell and fire, uh, a lot of hell and fire. And they were like, I mean, okay, that's true, but I'm not sure it needs to be like the main emphasis of an eight-year-old's camp. But At the same time, um, I think that for me, I can't read passages like this and not not remember that not only did my parents uh, appreciate the Left Behind series, they collected the hardbacks. Um, So they are in our our dining room. They're they're situated there next to Your Best Life Now and The Prayer of Jabez and The Shack and other classics um, from evangelicalism. And so I think that for us it's hard because we immediately are like, oh gosh, like I've seen... I've seen people do things with passages like this that make me feel uncomfortable, that are theologically inaccurate, and therefore maybe I just won't take this seriously because it's too confusing or it makes me feel you know, stressed out or like I've seen cheesy renderings of these things. And I think that would be a, a real mistake because these are the words of Jesus. These are the words of our Lord. And we, we should take them seriously. I mean, what Jesus is wanting for us as his people, what he's wanting for us as his disciples and for his disciples is that we would not be surprised on the final day. That we would not be surprised, that we would be ready for him when he returns and comes for us. So in our passage today, there are at least five surprising things we learn about the kingdom of God. The first surprise you find in verse 20, the very first verse of our passage, is that people in Jesus' day were actually talking about God's kingdom. The the situation that arises comes because the Pharisees asked Jesus a question about the coming of the kingdom of God. And I dare say I have never been asked that question by anyone ever, when will the kingdom of God come? That is just not the situation that we find ourselves living in today today. Since we're not thinking about God's kingdom coming, then what are we thinking about in America? Well, David Brooks, an op-ed writer for the New York Times, wrote in his book, On Paradise Drive, this. He said, what does it mean to be an American? 
As diverse as we are, as complacent as we sometimes seem, Americans are united by a common mentality which we have inherited from our ancestors and pass on, sometimes unreflectingly, to our kids. We are united by future-mindedness. We see the present from the vantage point of the future. We are tantalized at every second of every day by the awareness of the grand possibilities ahead of us, by the bounty we can realize just over the next ridge. Now, Brooks wrote this before the pandemic. I think we've all kind of taken a hit a bit of our future mindedness, a bit of our optimism, but still we are an optimistic people. We're a future-minded people, particularly as we think about what we want to give to our children. In America, we Americans, in our future-mindedness, though we're not thinking about God's kingdom coming. You know, Andy referenced this in his prayer. We're really thinking about our kingdom coming. We are trained in school growing up, we're trained in the waters of our culture to believe that the, the goal of life is to build a kingdom for yourself, a kingdom where you can trust in your own wealth and power and security and your gifts and et cetera, et cetera. We grow up thinking about pursuing our own hopes and dreams. And whereas we Americans grow up thinking about our kingdom, the Jews of the time were not thinking about their personal kingdom. They were thinking about overthrowing the kingdom of Rome. But Jesus wasn't interested in, he's not interested in our little kingdom, and he wasn't interested in overthrowing the kingdom of Rome. He was interested in bringing about his own kingdom. And I'm going to warn you as we move on here, Jesus is being incredibly uncool by American standards. Like, he is anti uh, socially correct, politically correct. Like, there's nothing that Jesus says in here that would make him like a celebrity pastor or a worship leader. Like, basically, what he's saying is so hard for us in our Americanness, where we feel like we should have an, our own rights to our own lives and decisions, that, that Jesus' kingdom is coming regardless of how we feel about it. It is going to come. His kingdom is coming and not ours is just purely offensive. To us. But yet he's telling us the truth because he loves us and because he is the true king. Jesus is not being postmodern. For him, what's true for you isn't true for you. And what's true for me isn't true for me. What's true for you and true for me is that Jesus' kingdom is coming. And that's what he wants us to know. It doesn't really matter how you feel about that existentially. It's going to happen. And so you need you're a Christian, to live according to his kingdom. And if you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, you need to contemplate the fact that Jesus is disagreeing with you because he cares. In the end, his kingdom comes, not your kingdom and not America's kingdom. And if your kingdom and America's kingdom are intertwined, well, then you need to do business with that too because his kingdom is coming. And it's not going to come through our political system here. That's the truth. So that's the first surprise. People are talking about the kingdom of God. The second surprise is when the kingdom of God comes, it comes in three stages or three steps. It comes differently than we would have anticipated. You know, the kingdom of God, we've been talking about it in this series. Mark Jung did a really good job explaining this when I was gone as well. Um, but one of the best definitions for the kingdom of God, if you're not familiar with the term, is given by a theologian named Graham Goldsworthy. He says the kingdom of God is God's people 
in God's place under God's rule. Or put another way, the kingdom of God is found wherever God is ruling in the hearts and the lives of his people. If you find Jesus as king in the heart of a believer or in a church or in a group of believers, there you find the kingdom of God coming on earth. And here Jesus tells us that his rule and reign on earth or his kingdom, it's not going to come all at once. It's going to come in a three-stage process. The first uh, part of this process of the kingdom, come, the first stage is called the inauguration of the kingdom. You find that in verse 21 where he says the kingdom of God is in your midst or the kingdom of God, another way of translating that, is among you. Jesus is saying to his disciples that he is with them in that moment and he, wherever Jesus is present, the kingdom of God has come. This is the inauguration of the kingdom. In the first stage of the inauguration of the kingdom, Jesus comes. This is the era that Jesus lived in where he he dies on the cross. He's raised from the dead after he's incarnate. He's raised from the dead and he's exalted into heaven. This is the first stage of the inauguration of the kingdom. But then Jesus goes on to say there's going to be a second stage. Even though that first step in the coming of the kingdom of God is crucial There's a second stage called the continuation. We could call it the continuation of the kingdom. This is the part of the kingdom of God after the inauguration where Jesus goes to heaven and he's waiting to return. And for now, Jesus is not present physically with us. He's not here with us right now. You find that in verse 22 when he says to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. You will desire to see one of those days, but you will not see it. He's saying there's going to be a day when I'm not physically present with you, but the kingdom of God is still present on earth because I am present through the church. I am present through you. And what do we do in that day? What do we do in our day? We live in this continuation phase of the kingdom. What do we do? We live to extend the rule and reign of King Jesus on this earth. How do we do that? We do that by sharing the gospel with others. We do that by loving one another and loving our neighbors. We do that by by caring about the refugee, caring about those who um, are racist and may not know it and, and making sure they understand that's not consistent with the kingdom of God. We share with others that we should care for the impoverished. We should clothe uh, those who have nothing. We should feed the hungry. We should live in the ways that Jesus wants us to live. And as we live according to the gospel, the kingdom of God comes on earth. The church should be um, a true expression of the kingdom of God. That's what we're called to be, a place where Jesus is king. I was interviewing, there's a bunch of children, a bunch of people who are uh, wanting to join the church right now, which is really exciting. And I was talking to uh, one, of the, one of the students, they're not kids, and uh, I asked them what, you know, maybe felt like a trick question, but I said, if your elders or your pastor begin to teach something other than what is consistent with the Bible, do you still need to follow them? Because one of the vows you take is to, you know, submit yourselves to the shepherding discipline of the church. And they kind of stopped and, and they were like, no, we, we, we shouldn't follow the pastors and elders if they disagree with God's word. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. Because I'm not king, and the elders aren't king. Jesus is king. 
Jesus is king of the church. And, and to the extent that he is ruling and reigning in the church, we are a church. To the extent that he's not ruling and reigning in the church, we are not a church. And so we need to be seeking to follow Jesus. And so we, we seek to follow Christ and we seek to extend the kingdom of God on earth by loving our neighbors, loving one another, sharing the gospel, living with the values that Jesus had. That is what we are called to do. We are in this continuation phase of the kingdom of God, and it's a very important stage in the kingdom of God because the next stage of the coming of the kingdom of God is the completion stage or the consummation stage where Jesus returns. It's where Jesus says in verse 23, and they will say, look there, look here, do not go out and follow them. He says in verse 24, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so the Son of Man will be in his day. When Jesus returns, everybody's going to know it in the whole world. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I'm sure it'll be covered on the news outlets. Maybe that's one we'll know to be on the internet. But I think we'll just know. I think we'll just know. When my kids were growing up, uh, we were living in a different place in Cary. One night I remember a, a lightning storm coming through. And it's one of those storms that wakes up everybody in the house, and there's no use in trying to put the kids back to bed. You're just like, well, I guess we're up now. And so we went out on the front porch. We had a covered front porch. Um, the, the lightning wasn't imminently dangerous, but it was one of those where lightning was just like for an hour just like lighting up the sky. Booms. There was no way you're waiting three seconds between the thunder and the lightning. It was here, and everybody knew it, and there was no going to sleep at that point. And that's what it's going to be like when the kingdom of God comes. And that's why this stage is so important, because once he comes again, once the kingdom is completed, there's no more time. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of extending the kingdom of God on earth so that our neighbors will know and be able to respond to the gospel. But it was a surprise, and Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom of God is not coming all at once. It's coming in the inauguration. It came when King Jesus came to earth it comes in the continuation. It comes in the second stage as we, the church, are extending the rule and reign of the king. And it comes in the third stage, the final stage, when Jesus really returns again, the second coming, and then he sets the world to rights. But we need to be careful because there are people, Jesus is warning us here when he says, there are people who will say, look here, look there. Uh, I took a seminary class from a guy named Michael Horton, a brilliant professor, where for eight hours one Wednesday, it was one of those eight to five, you know, you take a class for five days, eight to five, and it's an unbelievable amount of content. He spent one whole day, he was talking about Christian movements in history or non-Christian movements. He, he spent a whole day for eight hours telling us about all the different movements since the 1400s that have claimed that Jesus was going to return. And they had some special information to let us know that Jesus was going to return. It was fascinating. Since the 1400s, like every 30 years, somebody's like, oh, I had a vision, Jesus is going to return, and they have a little following, and a bunch of people get excited, and they, they burn all their you know, CDs and give away all their movies, and then, oh, you know, that's not it. I remember when I was growing up, there was a book that everybody was reading called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 88. And I was 10 or 11 during this time, and everybody was freaking out. And I remember being like, oh, my gosh, man, I've only got a year left, you know. I hope I have a good baseball season, you know. But we don't want to get thrown off by all of these, this crazy, these crazy little movements that come up. We just need to know 
that Jesus is going to return. And we need to live as if Jesus is going to return, whether or not somebody writes a book with 88 points in it. We need to live as if we're ready for Jesus to return. So the second surprise is going to come in a different way than we expect. The third surprise is when the kingdom of God comes, most people will be preoccupied with ordinary things. So in this section, Jesus gets radically uh, uncomfortable for us. I just want to tell you, if you're a universalist, meaning you believe that many roads or all roads ultimately lead to God, I'd love to talk to you after this sermon because the rest of the sermon, you're going to be really uncomfortable and you're going to be offended by what Jesus says. And so if you're a universalist where you kind of believe in the end it all is going to work out for everybody, that's not what Jesus says here. It's not what he says at all. And if you find yourself disagreeing with Jesus, you just need to know where you stand. So here Jesus clearly tells us that all roads do not lead to God, and beyond that, all roads that lead away from God are not as obvious as you would imagine. They're not filled with evil, necessarily. They're filled with ordinary things, ordinary pursuits. And Jesus draws illustrations from two famous Old Testament passages here in the book of Genesis. First of all, he talks about Noah and the flood, and then Lot and the fire raining down on Sodom to illustrate what it will be like when he judges the world. Now, both of these events, it's well documented that the people are in Noah's time and the people in Lot's time and Sodom and Gomorrah in particular were extremely evil people, uh, at least in pockets. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about the really evil people in Noah's time and Lot's time. He's just talking about the ordinary people, just the people that were living during that time. And he says in verse 27, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. A couple things to notice here, if you go back and you read Genesis, in, in the days of Noah, Jesus took, or, or the Lord God took a long time while Noah was building the ark. Years of warning, of waiting, and no one, no one responded. No one took the time to consider what they needed to be considering. They were all busy. In the days of Lot, the story is this long and drawn-out story where it took at least months of trying to figure out who was still righteous and how many God followers were there in Sodom and Gomorrah. There was time. God's, God's desire is not to rain down flood and fire. His, his desire, it says in Second Peter, is that, that we would come to repentance. And so there's this time that it takes. But nonetheless, even though there's time, people don't use that time. They don't use it wisely. They get they, get, they fill up their lives with ordinary things, relentless pursuit of the ordinary, and they just keep on going. Listen to what they describe of the ordinary things. Eating and drinking, okay? Food and drink are good. They're, they're great things that God has blessed us with. But some of us start planning our dinners while we're eating lunch. I mean, literally, like we're just so obsessed with what we're eating and drinking that that's what we think about all the time. Being married and given in marriage. Marriage is a gift from God ordained by God. 
But some who are not yet married spend their lives obsessing over how am I going to get married. And then once you're married, you spend your life obsessing over how am I going to please who I married and my kids. And we, we don't give time to think about what really matters oftentimes. Buying and selling. Starting and maintaining a business is good. Work is good. Work existed before the fall. But some get so engrossed in making a living that they don't think about the Lord. Planting and building, these are things commanded of us in Genesis 1.28 to cultivate the earth, to rule over it, subdue it. But then we start not subduing the earth for the glory of God. We do it so that we'll have more, so that we will have our own kingdoms. When I read this, I think of the never-ending stream of busyness with ordinary things that goes on here in Cary, Morrisville, Apex, Holly Springs, Raleigh, Durham, wherever you live, the never-ending stream of all the things that we are called, some of which we're called to do, but we're called to live in a right relationship with those things. But what I often see in my own life and in the lives of others is a compulsive, relentless activity with good things. An article was forwarded to me from a church member this last week titled, Which Central North Carolina City Ranks as the Number One Richest City in America in 2022? And the answer is Cary. The answer is Cary. Uh, I know there are different answers to this question, but this particular study was done, combining and analyzing data from multiple sources to consider the best and worst places to live. It combines unemployment, average income, cost of living, and other factors, and you have to be over a certain threshold and size of city. But Cary wins as the richest city in America over a certain number of people. I was surprised to see that. But if you live in Cary or the suburban triangle, you need to recognize that if you don't understand the the wealth that you are living in and kind of the power and security that you feel like that can purchase for you, that 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 is a danger for your soul. I was uh, one time doing some premarital counseling for a couple and both of them grew up in Cary and grew up in a private school in Cary. I'm not going to say which one. It's not the most wealthy of all the private schools. But one of the questions I asked them was, how do you think growing up in Cary and growing up in this private school setting has um, impacted your expectations for wealth and, uh, and what you feel like you need to achieve in life? And they both looked at me and they said, both of them said, we've never thought about that. And we should. And I said to them, yes, you should. You should absolutely think about that. And we should all think about that. We should think about what our regular everyday expectation is for what life is supposed to be like for us. And we have this insidious slide that we can take in the direction of actually believing that if we don't give up our life but actually pursue all of our hopes and dreams, then we can have them. And then we'll be happy, and then we'll really be actualized. And it's a danger that we, in particular, in the suburban triangle, need to be aware of. We need to be aware of this. We need to be very careful that the ordinary and carry doesn't ruin our hunger for the extraordinary. We need to be careful that we don't pursue our own interest instead of pursuing Jesus' interests in his kingdom. I believe many in Cary and the Triangle will be as surprised as Noah's and Lot's neighbors when Jesus returns. And that needs to compel our compassion and our action. 
Surprise number four is when the kingdom of God comes, what we love the most will be revealed, even for people in the church. So down to verse 31, there's the image of this man who on that day, Jesus is telling us, like, Jesus can see this day. He can see it. He he, he can see it happening. He's not bound by time like we are, okay? He can see that on that day that there is going to be a scenario where this will actually happen. You now, people in this day often would have a roof, um, and on, on the roof they might have a porch to work or rest. That's different than us. Um, but they, they would often kind of chill, chillax on the roof. And, um, and so what the image is, is here of Jesus comes, and this man, instead of thinking, praise God, I've been waiting for this, he thinks, oh, man, I need to go get some of my stuff. Uh, same thing happens later, there's this, this woman uh, who instead of, of being in the field, and I think it's, it could be a woman or a man, but she's in the field, she's working, and she thinks to herself, let me go back to my house and then I can go on. And then get, we get to one of the shortest and most powerful verses in the Bible because Jesus said it, and he says in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Do you remember the story? God is raining down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. And in that moment, they're all warned, don't look back, don't turn back. Keep your eyes pointed forward. And she just can't resist looking back and seeing her former life and seeing what she's losing instead of looking forward to what she's gaining. Charles Spurgeon said this about Lot's wife. She was almost saved but not quite. Almost say, but not quite. What happened here? Why did they look back? Why did Lot's wife look back on Sodom? Well, apparently on your final day, and this is very sobering, you will show yourself to be who you really are. You will show whether or not you really are looking forward to the kingdom of God coming and looking forward to Jesus, and he really occupies the affections of your soul, or you will look back you will look back on what you really love. What's even more sobering about this story is that Lot's wife, she was married to Lot, who in Hebrews 11 is considered to be one of the most righteous men who have ever lived, which tells us that Lot's wife was, if there was a church in Sodom, I'm not sure there was, I haven't really thought about that very much, but if there was, then she would have been a member in good standing. She was a church a churched person. She was in the people of God, in a very small church, I would imagine, if there was one there. Lot's wife was among the righteous, but she was not a true believer because she loved Sodom more than she loved God. And we need to ask ourselves the question, do we love Carrie and what we can buy here? Do we love South Durham? Do we love Holly Springs? Do we love our suburban life more than we love God? If Jesus returned right now, right now, would we be thinking about all of the things that we're leaving in our house? Or all the vacations we didn't get to go on? Or all the dreams we have for our children that will never be realized? Or will we be glad, fully joyful in the Lord? Does he occupy our affections? Do we love him more than anything else, more than suburban America? How do we prepare ourselves for that final day? Well, Jesus says, whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, 
and whoever loses his life will preserve it. That's verse 33. What he's saying is the best way to prepare for that final day is to go ahead right now, right now, and to lose everything for him. And we went through last week. I'm just going to recount the same points. This is a very similar message at this point. But what you need to do is if you recognize there's something that you might look back for, if you're Lot's wife and you're like, this would be what I'd be tempted to look back for, what you need to do is you need to be honest. You need to own that and be like, man, this for me is something that I might value more than God in my life. You need to own that. Then you need to repent of that and say, God, help me. Help me to turn away from this. I do not want to love this thing more than I love you, but sometimes I do. And I really want you to free me from this. I repent of that, and I give that to you. And then you need to devote that thing. Devote it to God. Maybe it's your children and their success. Maybe it's your business and its success. Maybe it's your health and wanting to be, you're obsessed with your health. You're constantly thinking about your own health. I don't know what it is, but you need to devote it to the Lord because there's certain things, we talked about this last week, and all of these things that are listed here of the reasons why people were obsessed with the ordinary, they're good things. If they would have devoted those things to God truly, eating and drinking, marriage, buying and selling, having property, great things. But they weren't devoted to God. They loved those things more than they loved God. Devote those things to God truly in your heart and say, God, show me how I can devote my life to you. In these areas that I so badly want to serve those things instead of serving you, show me how to devote myself to you. Remember Lot's wife. Don't let Carrie satisfy you. Look into the eyes of Jesus until he returns. The fifth surprise is when the kingdom of God comes, people in close relational proximity to you will be taken away. Now, this is a disturbing scene. One taken, the other left. These are friends, these are loved ones, these are neighbors. The question I would ask is if David Brooks is right and Americans are so future-oriented, how many Americans imagine their future as one of eternal judgment? One survey I found, ABC poll, says that 89% of Americans believe in heaven, and among those believers in heaven, 85% say they'll be headed there. I don't think Jesus would necessarily agree. One of the reasons why people might bank on being okay in that moment is because of their relational proximity to someone else who they consider to be a true follower of Jesus. So maybe you, maybe you have parents that follow God, but for you, you're like, eh, I don't know what I think about that. But, you know, I'm probably okay because my parents are Christians. Um, or a friend might be like, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm not really a believer, but I, I'm friends with people who are believers. But Jesus is saying on that final day, that's really not going to make any difference. There's only going to be one person in this world that you can be in relationship with that will make a difference on that final day, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. You can't say, you know, Corey was my pastor, or I knew this person in the church, or, or I was my, my mom faithfully attended. It doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not you know Jesus, whether or not you've received his grace, whether or not when you look at his death, and his resurrection, you think, that is, my, that is what I needed more than anything in the world. My sin was, was destroying my life, and Jesus saved me. And you look to him, and you have a relationship with him. If you have a relationship with Jesus, if you truly trust him for salvation, 
then you need to know that you have no reason to fear on that final day. I know that Jesus is being, he really wants to make sure that you really believe him and trust him. He really does. Because he's the only one who can save you. But if you look to Christ to save you, if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you are safe, you are secure, and on that day you will be brought into heaven. If you have a relationship with Jesus now, you're going to have a relationship with him then. He's not going to fail you. He says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one. But only Jesus' hand. Only Jesus' hand. And so if, you, if you're not in a place where you would say that I have a relationship with Jesus or I've really looked to him for salvation, then you need to not, you need to not believe that because you go to church or in church you know people that might go to church. That's not... That's not where it's at. That's not going to be enough on that day. You need to know Jesus Christ himself. And it's very easy to have a relationship with Jesus in the sense of starting that relationship with him. All you need to do is trust him. Trust him for salvation. Say, I believe you. I trust you. I trust you that even though I, I am, a, an, like John Calvin said, I am an idol factory. I'm constantly generating these, these areas of my life that I want to look to for, for uh, satisfaction apart from you. Even so, Jesus says, I love you and I care for you and you are mine. But we need to, to do that business of going, do I love Christ? Do I know him personally? If you know him, then you are safe. If you don't know him, then you can turn to him now. You can turn to him now and trust in him for the first time. And you can know on that final day that you will be able to go with him into heaven. For us who are true believers, this, as I was preparing this, this week, I mean, this passage just wrecks me in terms of how little I think about my neighbors. I mean, I do think about my neighbors some. <laughs> but if this is real and this is the kingdom of God that's coming on earth, I get lulled into sleep and carry too. Of believing that we're more okay than we are. And we need to be motivated in a fresh way to pray for our neighbors, to love them, to spend time with them, and to share the gospel with them. You know, my, my grandfather at the end of World War II had the opportunity to be one of the liberators in western Germany as the war was ending. And he led a team of, of soldiers through towns in western Germany to let them know that the reign of the Third Reich was over. That there was a new kingdom, in a sense, that was now in power that the Allied forces had won. What those people needed to do in that situation, first of all, was to believe them. Believe it. It's true. This happened. There's a new reign. They needed to trust them because the next instructions were, if you will trust us, then you can be free. You can live a new life. And then they needed to live that new life. The news for us today is that Jesus has come. He has inaugurated his kingdom. There is a new king and a new kingdom. It is a, king of, is a king of grace and of love. And if you will trust him, if you will trust that news, you can live in a new kingdom now. You can live in freedom now. You can follow him now because he's the true king. Let's pray. Jesus, I just want to thank you for not pulling any punches with us. Lord, you tell us the truth, and you tell it to us because you love us. I can just see the compassion in your eyes as you're speaking to these 
disciples and to these Pharisees at the same time, some of whom believed that they surely would see the kingdom of God and, and would not if they didn't have a change in their heart. And others who would see your kingdom were already seeing your kingdom, but were called to live in a radically different way than the world around them. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for like a mirror. It does show us who we are. And we pray that we, as we see who we are, that we would own that, that we would repent, and we'd follow you wholeheartedly. I pray that no one would be surprised on the day of your coming. We would all be ready because we're ready now to follow you. Lord, would you do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.